when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. How can the Labour Party regain trust on the economy after its last two election platforms were deemed not credible by British voters? Well, the Prime Minister promised a new deal. But there's not much that's new, and it's not much of a deal. We're facing um, an economic crisis, the biggest we've seen in a generation, and the recovery needs to match that. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. Keir Starmer, the Labour Party leader, was heard at the top of the programme criticising the government's plan for a post-COVID recovery. In our latest interview special, I'm speaking to Bridget Philipson, the Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, about how her party can prove itself on this crucial issue of the economy. And we'll also be speaking about how Labour can win back its lost voters in the north of England. Ms Philipson was first elected as the MP for Sunderland South in 2010 at the age of 27. Under Ed Miliband's leadership, she served as a Labour whip before serving on several parliamentary select committees. During and since the 2016 referendum, she made no bones about her staunch Remain stance on the EU question. Unlike many of her colleagues, however, she survived the Tory tidal wave that hit the northeast of England in the 2019 election and was soon appointed to the Shadow Treasury team by Keir Starmer in April. So Bridget, thank you very much for joining us on Payne's Politics. Thanks for having me. So what kind of summer has it been for you? Because MPs tend to normally go back to their constituencies throughout the summer to spend time with their voters and deal with local issues. Has it been like that for you this year? I think it's been a busy summer for all of us. I've been really keen, now it's safe to do so, to be out speaking with local businesses. I've been able to do uh, some visits as well, just to really gauge how people feel about things right now. But also, it's always a welcome opportunity over the summer to try and catch up on a bit of reading and... Um, uh, spend some time with the family. What have you read that's taken your fancy? I'm usually midway through about three different books uh, in one go. I'm reading a book by Roy Hatsley at the moment. I've also just finished uh, Ben McIntyre's The Spy and the Traitor, which was a really interesting read, and Bernadine Evaristo's recent book too. So I've always got about three or four on the go about halfway through and finished at least one of them over the summer. So that's some progress. Well, I'm very pleased to hear and some very on-brand books there as well. But let's go on to the issue that's going to dominate this autumn's political season, and that's the economy and how Labour can be credible again. A decade since the Labour Party left office and 12 years since the financial crisis, the UK's opposition party still struggles to be trusted on how to run the economy. According to a recent survey by YouGov, the Conservative Party is 20 points ahead on the question on who is most trusted, which has now jumped ahead as the pressing issue over the coronavirus pandemic. 
One of the reasons Tony Blair was able to get his party back into power in 1997 was to ruthlessly focus on being credible so the party could not be outflanked by the Tories. Keir Starmer is hoping to do the same thing between now and 2024, but as the polling shows, there is a mountain to climb and also a big divide within the party about how to go about it. So, Richard, if we can just begin by going back to last year's general election, you weren't on the shadow front bench, but you were standing as a Labour MP. What did you make of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell's policy platform for lots of tax and spend? Was it right or was it too radical? Well, ultimately, it didn't win us that election and we've lost four elections on the bounce now. I'm in no doubt about the scale of the challenge that we face. I mean, 2019 was a devastating election for us. It was brutal. It was bruising. And I never again want to go back to where we were on the 12th of December 2019. I will never forget how it felt on that day. And I think all of us in the party need to focus on the change that we need to see uh, in order that we can persuade the public once again that they can trust us to win the country. That's a big challenge, um, but it's one that Keir Starmer has already set us on the path to achieving. How surprised were you with the 2019 result? Because I travelled a lot around the north of England, could see that there was a big growth in the Tory vote, but some seats like Blythe Valley up in Northumberland, quite near where you represent, had never had a Conservative MP before. Did you see that scale of change coming? I knew it was going to be terrible. I mean, the, the conversations that you had with voters, it was clear that even where the felt that some of the policy ideas that we were putting forward were the right ones, where they shared our values, where they wanted to build that better country that we were committed to. They just didn't trust in the Labour Party to deliver that. So I knew it would be a very difficult night. It was probably at the upper end of what I thought could be the worst case scenario for the party. It was it was absolutely devastating. But ultimately, we let down people in those communities and we let down the British public by not being in a position uh, to be an effective government in waiting. We face a big challenge ahead. I think we're on the right path towards rebuilding that trust. We'll have to rebuild. We have to focus on the future. Uh, We've got time to get that right. And, you know, 2024 gives us time to plan for the changes that we'll need to put forward for our country. Well, let's talk a little bit about that vision, because that 20-point gap I mentioned in the YouGov pose there, how do you explain why Labour is just simply not trusted to run the UK economy? Where we are now is not where we need to be. That's absolutely clear. You only have to look at that to understand the scale of the challenge that we're facing. I think we have to be clear as a party in setting out the kind of country that we want to build. The Labour Party only wins when it has a positive, optimistic and hopeful vision about the future. But that has to involve being a credible opposition and a credible government in waiting. I think everything we've been doing throughout this crisis has been working as a constructive opposition to press the government where we feel things aren't going right, to give voice to those concerns that people have, but at the same time, not just taking cheap shots for the sake of it. But I do sense a growing frustration, particularly amongst businesses and amongst workers, around the lack of support that the government is offering in the right places. We face a particularly difficult economic outlook. We know that we're likely to face a kind of mass unemployment we haven't seen for a generation. And that does present real challenges for the government around making sure that we target support most effectively at those sectors of the economy that are going to struggle for longer. We haven't seen that. And we've got the government giving money over to companies who'll be bringing back workers anyway. We don't think that's the right right approach. 
we need to look much more clearly at the different parts of our economy and the workers within those sectors who will be affected for much, much longer. Well, that point you just made about, you know, being an effective opposition here, some supporters of Jeremy Corbyn have said, in fact, that Keir Starmer's team have been too soft. They're not landing blows on the government. And in fact, they're supporting things that are not policy the Labour Party should be supporting on schools. You should have been critical. Do you have any sympathy with that argument? I don't think in a time of national crisis, the public wants to see us taking cheap shots at the government. They do want to ask those probing questions around why things are going so badly wrong in some areas of the government's response. I think if you look at the issue of confidence within the economy, we've had major problems with the government's testing programme, with Test Track and Isolate, which just isn't working as effectively as it should. Until we get that confidence back, until we better connect the health response and the economic response, I think it will be far harder to persuade the people to get back onto those high streets and to see businesses return in big numbers. When it comes to schools, I think of those children within my community for whom whom school is an absolute lifeline. I want to see them back in school. But that's why getting the testing regime in place correctly is so important. We want to minimise the risk of those further local uh, restrictions being reimposed where we see spikes in the virus. And it's not clear that the government is planning for what could be a very difficult winter ahead, making sure that the flu vaccine is properly rolled out and better joining together those different aspects of the public health and the economic response that they're working in lockstep. So let us imagine for a moment Bridget Philipson was sitting in the Treasury throughout this autumn and you can see the unemployment rising as the furlough scheme ends. You can see businesses making huge amount of redundancies, the British high street being hollowed out. What policies would you be doing right now to avoid that kind of catastrophe you've talked about? We think the government's blanket withdrawal of the furlough scheme, that one size fits all approach, is the wrong approach to take, given that we know some sectors haven't returned at all or are going to be operating at much greatly reduced capacity for a much longer period of time. You know, I think of my region in the northeast, which you know very well, and the importance of the manufacturing sector to our economy. It just hasn't returned. It's just not possible for it to get back to where it needs to be until things start to improve. We spend a lot of time talking about home working and but it's in regions like the northeast where it's just not possible for many people to work from home. It's vital that they're back in their workplaces. But those sectors are seeing the same blanket withdrawal of support as other sectors that are operating far more at capacity. And also the government's kickstart programme, which is already behind its timetable, will be central to making sure that we limit the scale of the unemployment that we're seeing. I think we do face a big institutional challenge because we haven't seen this level of mass unemployment for a long time as a country. We don't necessarily have those responses there just to pull off the shelf. But that's why it's vital that the scale and timescale of these programmes are delivered effectively. You know, when I visited businesses right across the country, they just feel that the government isn't listening and doesn't recognise how things will be more difficult for longer for some parts of our economy over others. And they want to see that support better targeted. Do you think there's a sense that the government is trying to prop up an economic model that is no longer viable in the COVID age? That, you know, they want, you know, the prets and the coffee shops and the sandwich bars to continue very much as they did before. But there is a view among some that, in fact, COVID has destroyed that model. It wasn't a very good economic model in the first place based on low wages and zero hours contracts. Do you think that, in fact, that we should just be acknowledging this is a huge once in a generational economic change and we need to focus on what the alternatives going to be? I don't think the government is properly getting to grips with the complexity 
and the and the differential impact that the crisis is having across our country. There's also a lot of focus I find sometimes on the kind of commuter belt and people who will travel into work by train. You know, in my part of the world, you know, less than 0.5% of those who commute into work do so by train. We haven't had any passenger rail services now for over 50 years. That's just not the shape of the economy. So, of course, we've got to have a response on getting people back to work on public transport. But actually, in large parts of the country, there is no public transport or there is minimal public transport for that to happen. So I think the government just needs to be looking far more carefully at those sectors and areas that will need support. One thing you've talked about a lot, Bridget, is the idea of a green recovery, a green new deal to try and rebuild the economy after the coronavirus lockdown. But the Conservatives also use this language too. They're the ones who brought in this carbon neutral target by 2050. What's the difference between the Conservatives' green deal and your green deal? I think the difference is the Conservatives are talking a lot about it and it's not clear that action is following. These are exactly the kinds of jobs that we need to be creating for young people going into the future. Again, I look at my region and the great opportunities that are presented for highly skilled, well-paid jobs that people are desperate to see. But it does require government to take an active role in making that happen. It's one thing to set targets. It's another thing to deliver on it. And when it comes to much of this talk around a green recovery, we're just not seeing that action that we will need to see for the economy in the future. Well, this is a challenge for Labour too, because you said you're going to consult widely and create this agenda. You know, one of the reasons Kistam has been criticised since he became opposition leader back in April is that he's very good at diagnosing and examining the government, but hasn't really yet offered any clear alternatives of what he would do. When can we expect those details to begin to emerge? I think as we head through the autumn, we will see clear themes from the party around the kind of country that we want to build. You know, we only recently lost that general election. We're not facing the prospect of an election for some time to come. The only one good thing that comes out of such a devastating defeat is that we now have the time to plan, to look very carefully at the shape of the country now, but also the shape of the country in 2024 and the shape of the country into the 2030s. And that's why I've always believed that there is a role for government in shaping all of that, in giving people choice and opportunity, in giving people the freedom that those with more assets with opportunity and from particular families have long enjoyed. I want that for every child right across our country. Well, it's not only you who thinks there's a role for government in doing this, it's the Conservative Party as well, particularly since the 2019 election. The Tories have moved way to the left on the economy. Some of the schemes they've introduced during the coronavirus lockdown are the most socialist programmes we've ever ever seen in this country. You know, how do you fit within that narrative there? Because if they're much to the left and they're, you know, going to increase taxes and increase state spending, where does that leave the Labour Party? I think it's welcome that we've seen uh, an acceptance by the Conservatives that there is a role for the state in both shaping our economy and providing opportunity. And I think you also have to look at the relationship that's been developed with the TUC to understand that actually where you have business and government and trade unions working together, that's a really effective way of doing things. So I hope that they'll continue to take that forward. I'm not entirely confident that will be the case. I think the risk that we face now with the looming jobs crisis and all of the challenges that lie ahead, is if that's pulled away too soon, if the government feels that, well, it's job done, they've done all they can, they've made these big interventions and seeks to withdraw support, as they've done with the furlough scheme, but where they look to pull demand out of the economy too early, I think the damage will be far worse and that's something we must avoid. 
So one thing that I think is going to be a challenge in the future is we've now seen the awesome power of the British state about how it can be mobilized. The Conservatives have done that. And in the future, when people have got these big challenges that need to be addressed with regards to infrastructure or the jobs market or the economy, there's no real excuse to say the government can't do this because we've seen through the furlough scheme, the kickstart, the bounce back loans, all these different things. It's very clear that government can act and can be effective. And yet, despite that, where it comes to schools, um, we've not had that comprehensive programme in order to get children back in the classroom sooner. I think it's really disappointing that we didn't get more children back before the end of term in July. A lot of children have missed a big chunk of their education. It's going to take a lot, particularly for those most disadvantaged children and children with disabilities to have that support to catch up. I think further determination on that would have seen more children back sooner. There is the role of government in shaping all of this. We've seen it in some parts of the government's response, but in others, where it comes to schools, I think that incompetent mishandling of that return to school, I'm not sure the government are learning or always learning the lessons around their role in the response to the crisis. So just finally on the economy, Bridget, do you think there's a possibility the Labour Party will adopt a similar position as it did in the run-up to 1997, where it promised the same overall spending envelope as the Tories? Because that was one of the big reasons Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were seen as credible, because they weren't going to outspend Labour, whereas in the 2017 and 2019 election, where the party did suffer big losses and didn't win, it didn't have that. What we've been doing right now in the Shadow Treasury team, and I've been working very closely with Annalisa Dodds on this, is to make sure that every commitment we're putting forward, both now and into the future, is costed in a way that's consistent and is credible. Now, that's not to say that that will limit us in putting forward an ambitious and popular programme come the time of the next election. But we do need to make sure that we have that fiscal credibility and that we're clear about the kinds of interventions that we want to make. If we are to secure that popular programme that we can deliver after the next general election, in the event we can win that election and form a government, then it's vital that we do that proper work now to get the platform in the best possible place. Now, let's return to the question about Labour's future in the North and particularly the issue of Brexit. You were one of the key voices in the party campaigning for a people's vote, a second referendum on the EU question. Do you think, in retrospect, that was the wrong policy because it led your party to electoral disaster? I mean, I thought long and hard about the approach that I took on Brexit. And I think what changed it for me was the fact that what I felt was being promised was worlds away from what people had been promised they would get at the time of the referendum. But, you know, we've left now. I think that argument has moved on. We all of us as individual MPs seek to do the right thing by our constituents. The worry that I have now in terms of how we respond in all of this is that in the midst of a pandemic where businesses have had to face many challenges, particularly those kinds of export businesses in regions like the North East, they need to see the government delivering on this oven-ready, brilliant deal that the Tories have promised us because they can ill afford disruption to supply chains or any problems within their production lines. And, you know, the clock is ticking and we'll be holding the government to account on making sure they deliver that wonderful deal that they have promised us time and again. Well, whatever the Brexit deal is, it's either going to be that or no deal at the end of this year because we've passed the point for Brexit extension. As you said, the election has kind of clarified the Brexit situation. We have formally left the EU. So can you imagine a situation where you vote or abstain for the Brexit deal simply to avoid a no deal outcome? I think the government will secure some kind of deal. 
But I think what the British people will have to judge is whether it lives up to what they've been promised, this kind of brilliant deal that puts our export businesses, our world-leading industries in the best possible place to compete into the future. I think they need to know from government very soon that things are going to work out for them because certain sectors of our economy are already on their knees and not able to operate anywhere near capacity, if at all in some cases. So we'll be pressing the government really hard to make sure that we don't see that hit on business and jobs. Many people in the Labour Party, I know, want to move on from Brexit. It's been a very problematic issue dividing the party's metropolitan, more liberal-minded supporters with the more socially conservative supporters in places like Sunderland. You can appreciate why so many of your colleagues lost their seats because you are on the opposite side of this very big issue, which may still be pertinent at the next election. I mean, I don't think the connection to what happened in the 2019 general election is quite so straightforward. But you know, Brexit's happened, we've left. I think the public, by the time of that election, were sick of Brexit and wanted to move on from it. Much of that, of course, has been pushed back with the great challenge that we face at the moment in responding to the pandemic. Well, you mentioned that the loss of all those seats in what's been termed the Red Wall, Bridget, was due to more factors than just Brexit. You know, how much do you think it was that combination of Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn's leadership versus the longer term trends of deindustrialization, the changing shape of the economy, and the fact a lot of those seats are now more service-based, richer places than they might have been in their manufacturing heyday? I think we did see an acceleration of many of those longer term trends that has seen support moving away from Labour. I think when it comes to both how we approach voters in the North and right across the country, it's about building that broad coalition that we will need to see in order to win next time. So that means that people feel we not only share their values, but that we can deliver on them in government. And that's as true in the North as it is in the South. But even if we were to win back those seats, we need to win again in Scotland. We need to win right across England as well too. That's an immense challenge I am immensely proud of the great things our country has done before and will do again. But I think our best days are ahead of us and not behind us. And the challenge for the Labour Party is persuading the British people that we understand that, that we're on their side and that we're committed to building that kind of country where no matter where you're born or the family that you come from, you have every opportunity to get on in life. That's why I joined the Labour Party. That's why I came into politics. And that's the kind of country I think we need to build. You must still find it quite bizarre, though, that one of the reasons you've said you joined the Labour Party and went into politics was the effect of policies of Margaret Thatcher, which the deindustrialization caused devastation across the northeast of England. Yet in the 2019 election, you saw former retired miners voting for the Etonian Boris Johnson, who was a Brexit backer. How do you square that in your head? I think people care less about where you're from rather than where you're at. I think people are less interested in someone's backstory or their personal history than they are in understanding that they recognise the challenges facing the country. But I think there is a growing sense of frustration when I speak to people around how the government is handling much of this response. You know, I think people recognise, of course, it was going to be tough for any government in how they responded to the scale of this pandemic. But I think as we're moving into the next phase of the government's response, they just don't understand why the government aren't listening and responding and, you know, one thing that's come across to me when I've spoken to businesses, particularly in the northeast, is that they feel the particular pressures they're under are just not well understood and not recognised within government. 
You talked about this issue of values here, because obviously the issue of patriotism is one that was particularly potent in the last election, where Jeremy Corbyn's views on various foreign policy issues allowed the Conservative to say that he's not patriotic, he doesn't support the armed services, he doesn't support his country. What kind of things do you think the Labour leadership, including yourself, should be doing to convince people Labour is a patriotic party again? I think what people want to understand is that they feel safe within their communities and safe within their country. And actually, in recent times, in my area, we've seen real challenges around antisocial behaviour, which makes people feel that they're just not safe in their own home and they're not safe when they leave home. I think they want to understand the Labour Party recognises the impact that crime and antisocial behaviour has, particularly on working class communities in those areas where we'll need to win again. And, you know, we, you know Nick Thomas-Simmons is our new Shadow Home Secretary has been absolutely clear in setting out that Labour is on the side of people within those communities, that we all of us have a right to live safe, dignified and fulfilled lives. And that's what the Labour Party is all about. Do you think Labour can somehow win at the next election or at least form a minority government? You know, what's your path back to power, particularly given the fact that Labour is absolutely nowhere north of the border in Scotland, as well as trying to to win back those Red War seats? Well, I think as Keir Starmer said very clearly, you know, the party is under new management. We'll be looking carefully at the kind of country that we need to build right into the future. That will involve us setting out a crisp, clear set of values that people feel we can deliver on in government. And I think where you've seen the Labour front bench out around the country, whether it's in Scotland, in Wales and in England, listening to voters' concerns and taking them on, we do have time on our side in coming to the next general election and formulating that policy programme But I think principally voters, I think, want the Labour Party to recognise that we lost badly, we have to change, and that we're focused on making sure we're listening to the kind of country they want to see us being a part of building. Well, Bridget, a fascinating chat. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And that's it for this episode of Payne's Politics. If you like this podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Fiona Simon, Liam Nolan, and Josh Delamere. Our sound engineer was Breen Turner, with research by George Steer. As ever, thank you for listening. 